Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 184 today, uh, Alchemically Stoned, part two. We have P.D. Newman back on the show. Uh, if you have not read his book, Alchemically Stoned, please go buy that. I will put the link down below the video uh, for the Amazon and uh, check that out 100%. And then he's also got a new one coming out soon um, where, uh, you know, he might discuss that here in a little bit. We'll get to that. Um, and yeah. So, and also go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive episodes and segments. We're going to try and do a short one uh, today if we can fit one in here with PD. Uh, also, I just uploaded one with Matt Roberts from our episode yesterday. Uh, we have a fan chat I just uploaded and uh, Andrew Gallimore. Matt, uh, we're going to try and get Matt Johnson back on at some point. So there's a lot of stuff on there. So go check that out. Uh, and if you have not already go to indraweb.org and set up an account. This is the social media platform that we designed to connect open minds. So, you know, whether it's talking about this esoteric stuff or ancient psychedelic use or UFOs or ancient civilizations, just any sort of outside the box thinking and, uh, theories, like all that stuff's welcome on there. So go check that out. Uh, but without further ado, welcome back on the show. PD, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you guys? Good, 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 Thanks good. For coming on, yeah. Um, Thanks for having me back. It's been a while, Absolutely. for sure. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually a pretty popular episode. We, I don't know, I think it was uh, before the one hundreds that we did. Uh, we had you on, but yeah, that was one of our earlier popular episodes, and got a great response. You got a lot of good fans out there. Fantastic! I, I had a lot of fun, so I'm, I'm looking forward to what you guys have cooked up for me today. <laughs> <laughs> so um let's jump in Let, last time we talked a lot about your book alchemically stoned and the research and everything and um is there anything that you learned since then that maybe you either changed your mind on or just learned more information about and had a kind of a different take um i i haven't changed my mind on any points um regarding the uh the thesis of the book particularly the the dmt argument but i have learned um lots of information that i didn't have access to when i published the first book um and uh part of that was because when i was researching the first book <clears throat> i was primarily researching the presence of um the use of the acacia within an entheogenic context, within Freemasonry itself, uh, which is limited. Obvious examples are limited um, within Freemasonry. But once I kind of took a step back and started looking at the fact that within each context within Freemasonry where it did occur, they were practicing alchemists using it that way, um, I realized I needed to go back and start investigating alchemical manuscripts. So uh, I learned a lot more um, about the role of acacia and, and specifically DMT 
in uh, uh, European alchemy. And that's basically what my new book um, is about. It's uh, an- called Angels in Vermilion, the Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT. And it basically traces the prehistory of DMT from uh, Elizabethan alchemists, Dr. John D and Sir Edward Kelly, uh, all the way up to um, the Royal Society, the Masonic Fraternity, and on into the 19th century occult revival with the Theosophical Society, and even examples that show up uh, direct DMT references in um, what's known as the Falconelli Affair, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, so, I think yeah, you lot, mentioned lot that to... last time we had you on. Okay, okay. Um, so, in terms of uh, all this, these different alchemists and... Um, people experimenting with things um you kind of have to like read between the lines kind of like what you were saying but is there is it like a known thing in these circles that that's what's going on or is that kind of like a um fringe speculation or hypothesis it it, the examples where it's obvious certainly appear to be fringe and those obvious examples occur in what would be called fringe Masonic circles, um, Cagliostro, Melissino. Um, while these were considered regular rites at the time, um, now they would be considered on the fringe because they don't reflect what happens in Blue Lodge Masonry today. But, um, but we are seeing in alchemical circles, people are starting to kind of wake up to the fact that European alchemy was largely concerned, especially after the Middle Ages, with the extraction of alkaloids from plant substances. And, for example, I don't know if if you're familiar with Steve Kalek, um, who's an alchemist out of Canada. He's written about his production of the... um, the elixir, the grand elixir is what it's called in the, in the post-boy expose. Um, and he published about that. It can be found online if you Google uh, Steve Kalek and DMT. And I think it, he calls the paper The Blood of Osiris because uh, he's looking at it from an Egyptian angle. But you'll also see other alchemists calling it The Blood of Christ, I've seen it called. Um, it seems to be that this is a, a widespread kind of revelation that... Not just DMT alone, but plants, plant alchemy in general, um, in many cases, was largely geared towards the production of psychoactive drugs. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it, when you, we actually did an episode um, on comparing. Are you familiar with the Codex Gigas, the Devil's Bible? I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with that. That first image of the devil, supposedly it looks a lot like a psychedelic entity. So I made the comparison between uh, that and then there was this artist, uh, Pavel, who made this um, jester. I think he called it a um, uh-huh. Hayoka jester. Um, and these things look particularly similar. So and the author is named Herman the Recluse. I speculate he was probably like an alchemist. You know, this would have been, I think, the 13th century. Um so do you think that that stuff was happening all the way back then? Or do you think that that was, you know, I know this has happened throughout history, but like, 
is there any periods where there was like less of this happening and it was like rediscovered or has this been straight happening as like an initiated kind of a thing throughout all of it's history? hard it's hard to say because like you said if it even if it is continuously going on within an initiatory capacity it's going to be largely secret so what we can point at and say that's an obvious example <clears throat> we're <clears throat> we're already lucky to have any examples to point mm-hmm. at because like you said it's happening within a secret secretive context um but yeah i do think that uh that it was and and is still going on to this day uh, i don't think people have have everyone has forgotten i think the public mind it's out of the public mind it's it has been for a long time but we know it's re-entering the public mind with the current decriminalizations and study into psychedelics. But, right. um, uh, but regarding the, the image itself that what people are saying is the, the earliest depiction of the devil, it does kind of have some uh, aspects to it that resemble some of those um, entities. And that's interesting that you bring that up because several scholars have pointed to um, entheogenic substances as the cause behind um, some of the cave art, Neolithic cave art, that, which depicts um, uh, what are called theriomorphs, half human, half animal mm-hmm. entities, demons that very much kind of resemble um, Baphomet or uh, the best example is uh, the demons in the Goetia, which were, or Goetia, um, which were illustrated in in uh, Francis Barrett's book, The Magus. <clears throat> but whenever the, the Theosophical Society was first formed, um, are you familiar with the Theosophical Society yeah. and Helena Blavatsky? Um, when well, it was we, we've formed, done a few episodes on Rudolf Steiner. Okay. Well, when, when, when they first formed the Theosophical Society, the president was a guy named George Felt, who was a chemist. And when they founded it, it was to be a practical, magical order, to teach practical magic. It wasn't until they did their first practical experiment that everybody absolutely panicked and Blavatsky decides this needs to be a purely theoretical order and we need to stop doing any of this practical stuff. Mm. What the practical exercises consisted of was George Felt burning some kind of chemical as an incense that caused everyone in the room to see what Colonel Alcott described as entities that looked like the beasts from Francis Barrett's The Magus. Mm. They were therianthropes. So whatever Felt burned as this incense induced a a state of consciousness in everyone present that caused them to see these entities and made them panic felt disappeared after this and nobody ever saw him again in the theosophical society so whatever he burned left with him um but it's interesting too that the same incarnation of the theosophical society and you can get this from Colonel Alcott's uh, diaries. Um, they had a textbook that they intended to have everyone study. And this textbook was a book called Art Magic by a woman named Emma Hardinge Britton, who was a, a psychic, a spiritualist. <clears throat> and one of the 
first people to really speak openly about the practices of magic. And one of the things she insists on in this book is that the the accomplishment of magic depends largely on trance states and entering trance states. And she says that the, the best means of entering the trance state are by these specific drugs she names. She says nitrous oxide, hashish, opium. But then she says... Two, the, she says the distillations produced from two or three acrid fungi. So at the time this was written, which was mid 19th century, there was really only one psychedelic mushroom known. And that was the Amanita muscaria mushroom, which Mordecai Cook talks about in his seven sisters of sleep as being one of the most well-known and popular narcotics of the Victorian era. But they didn't know about the other psychedelic mushrooms at the time. They they weren't brought to the larger public mind until the publication of Wasson's article in right. Life magazine in 1956. So she's talking about more than one species that induces this trance state, which seems to me to be a, most likely a clear indication that she's talking about a, a, a knowledge of psilocybin mushrooms. Now, I'm not saying that what felt was burning was psilocybin mushrooms, but it's clear that the early incarnation of the Theosophical Society, before it became a theoretical one, was focused on the use of drugs for practical magic. And you can't and smoke psilocybin, like it doesn't no, do anything, but Amanita, that's... supposedly, on Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, these people in the, uh, I think the Carpathian Mountains were smoking it and saying they get some sort of effects from it. I know once you I've decarboxylate it and get the ibotanic acid out of it, it becomes viable hypnotic i've never had any luck smoking it i've smoked it many times i have had luck consuming them um but never smoking them but i have read that people have had luck with it i've always wondered if it was just a leftover remnant from castaneda you know the don juan stuff right. but uh, i remember smoking the uh <laughs> The regular ones, the psilocybin, that, right, yeah. just a waste. In high school, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. And we're, we looked it up, and it, like on Irwin's, it's like it does nothing. They're like, we're yeah. still going to try it. I don't know, it. man. I, I might be feeling something. <laughs> I don't know. You're not. Um, right. You cannot you, smoke psilocybin. Right. I think yeah. the interesting thing, though, and, and like is this reoccurring theme of these this knowledge disappearing, reappearing. I mean, because the, even there's uh, Selva Pasolacqua is a cave in Spain where there's cave art where there's psilocybin mushrooms and i think that dates to it's like seven thousand years ago or may i is it seven thousand bc or seven thousand years ago i forget Which one? Where, where uh selva pasalacqua in spain it's oh like, yeah that's the one with the uh, depiction of the cousin of the psilocybe cubensis mushrooms which are psilocybe hispanica yeah is and then the there's one? also one in algeria there's a mural in algeria that's supposedly, south in algeria yeah. mm -hmm. i talk about both of those um in my article that I published uh, on John W. Allen's Ethnomycology Journal, I think it's number 10, which you can download for free on MAPS website. But uh, it's all about um, mushrooms and European alchemy. And I use those as prime examples of how there's most certainly um, psilocybin mushrooms present in Spain. Mm. And then just south in Algeria, which isn't that far, com right. considering the trade routes going on. Well, I mean, other than the, the Arctic and Antarctica, yeah, I would assume that there's obviously psychoactive mushrooms on all the, the continents. So, 
Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things, like I said, it's this reoccurring theme of people finding these things and then losing that knowledge or maybe it just dies out or whatever and then people finding it again and so forth, so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. it seems like um, it might be some sort of um, positive thing in terms of um, this idea that there's more out there too in these mystery schools and stuff, right? Because it's this mm-hmm. reoccurring theme that once you ingest these you get a uh, you know peak beyond the veil uh you know so to say right. so i mean what do you think in terms of the ancient stuff versus the more modern stuff and then you know obviously you talk a lot about you know the magic and uh a lot of stuff that was going medieval times and ancient alchemy and uh freemasonry and stuff like that so uh, do you think that we carried those traditions like we took p- bits and pieces or do you think that each time this reemerged it kind of had its own rituals or culture around it well i think you know the only people that appears to be forgetting are us the western culture even when we're forgetting there's still little pockets of people who are rem- remembering elsewhere and one good example of that is when um christopher columbus uh he was may have been the first Westerner to document the use of Yopo. Are you familiar with Yopo used by the Yonamomo? I've um, heard of it, but snuff. I don't know what it is. Yeah, snuff. It's yeah. DMT snuff that they make from the seeds of uh, two different trees, an Adenanthera peregrina and an Adenanthera colubrina. And they combine these seeds with uh, the ca- calcium carbonate that they have made from the calcinated bones of crustaceans and shellfish uh, that they that m- renders the snuff absorbable by the mucous membranes in the nasal cavity. If you just snort the seeds alone, nothing happens. But it's like lime, adding lime to something to make it active, almost like with the betel quid, if you're familiar with that. No, um, I, I was going to ask, though, I have that anodothera. I have heard people smoking, mixing that in with like tobaccos mm-hmm. and smoking that too. Oh, yeah. Would, that, ha- would that have the same effect or... Yeah, there, it's it's potent enough in bufotany to cause a flash of psychoactivity that uh, is undeniable. You you take the seeds the way they're prepared is to um, they're flat like the seeds from a mimosa, um, mm-hmm. like like a legume, mm-hmm. and they they're placed on a, a hot skillet to evaporate the moisture out of them and you'll see them swell up once it swells up they'll flip it over heat it let that swell up and then once it cools they'll break the outer shell off the brown covering and that reveals a white creamy colored um powdery waxy substance that's what you smoke and just after one to two hits we used to mix it with pig animal seeds, equal parts, and just one to two hits is enough to make you have to lay down for five or ten minutes. It, it's very uh, <clears throat> physically unpleasant, but visionary in the extreme. I mean, I, I remember having full-on visionary experiences just from smoking those seeds. But the reason I brought it up is that you know, why we might not have known about Yopo or DMT snuff or DMT at all <clears throat> in the 15th century. Um, Columbus documented it when they traveled through and saw the Yanomamo snuffing this cin- cinnamon-colored powder is how he described it. And when Humboldt went down to identify this tree 
in the um, early 19th century, I believe it was, um, he found it and identified it. It's an anadonanthera species. He didn't know that because it looks so much like an acacia. It's almost identical with the legume structure, the bipinnate compound leaf structure. If you didn't know the difference, you would say, this is an acacia. Right. And that's what Humboldt did. And he identified it as, as acacia neopo. So while we didn't know about it, there were still pockets where it was known about. So it's, you know, the, the idea of it disappearing and recurring, that's true for us. But right. um, I think there's always going to be some little pocket where it's just known well, Yeah, I mean, about plus with indigenous, you know, traditions right. and indigenous oral traditions. And these are the, the people that... Um, kept these traditions alive. And that's what we, we were talking about. I think it was with Andrew Gallimore and I was saying, you know, we owe the indigenous people, we owe uh, the clandestine chemists and just people using these mm -hmm. substances over the years to keep this idea alive that so now they can look at all these psychedelic therapies and science and, you know, get in there and do and figure out the mechanisms and everything behind these things. So I think that... right. Um, you're right. I think, you know, there's been people using these things forever. And at some point, you know, it just gets lost by the travelers or the people migrating, if you will. Um, was the people that... who evolved to a point where it no longer has a context in their culture. Right. Us. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and also I was, I, I've always been interested with this, the snuff stuff. Like, doesn't that, doesn't that stuff like make you sneeze? It's extremely unpleasant. And, uh, yeah. Lots of sneezing, vomiting. Because um, it's not water soluble, so it doesn't just like, you know, when you do like a cocaine type of mixture, it will dissolve within contact to water. That yeah, stuff seems the, to just like clump up and whatnot. There's a, there's a big kind of subculture of people who are getting back into snuffs. There's people snuffing um, um, cocoa powder at raves in europe you know people are snuffing what's called hape it's smelled like it's spelled r-a-p-e but hape is a, a tobacco blend that they'll snuff prior to doing ayahuasca a lot of times um, it's real mm. popular down in florida i personally can do without any of that i don't need anything up my nose <laughs> i have enough sinus issues <laughs> as it is i don't think i could handle it i can barely handle drinking or smoking this stuff i don't think i could handle a powder up my nose is, at the, all. is what you were yeah. just talking about though is that what i don't know if you've seen the latest season of hamilton's pharmacopoeia but he does an episode on buf uh uh and he goes down to this part of argentina where these trees grow and it's this seed kind of like what you were talking oh, that's about the anadin and thera they're yeah. looking for the botanine in them and the guy cooks it like on a little like little cup and on the fire and then but he said that he didn't feel anything but he knows he was speaking to jonathan ott who was like i guess super you know knows a ton about this and has had a ton of experiences you know with with this um compound and he mm -hmm. said that he didn't feel anything but jonathan ott swears by it so it was kind of an interesting uh, thing and he said I've, I've never had it go up my nose so I can't account for that but I can say smoking it is absolutely effective on its, on its own as a psychoactive compound on its own we would mix it with peganum harmala just because but we smoked it plenty of times without and it is absolutely hallucinogenic and, and what, are, what are the effects like um, I, one of the effects that I got and it, this was recurring many times I got this was the seeing what looked like uh 
needles flying through the air. Okay. Like, like hyperspace or like, something? Almost like little darts flying around. Okay. And I saw multiple times, I saw faces, gruesome, absolutely hellish, gruesome faces, like almost like um, the face of the Medusa okay. on Perseus's shield. Have you seen that mosaic where yeah. she's just, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, faces like that bone curdling from a dist from a far off distance and coming in close and right. you know going past me or through me. Um, those were recurring motifs with okay. the uh, with the anatin and therap. Doesn't sound I, very fun. Speaking. It wasn't. It's very nauseating, <laughs> and you know, but fun isn't that's, why we do it every that's time. True, that's you know. True. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it for fun. I, I always no, say that uh, if it didn't make, if it wasn't for fun, it wouldn't make you laugh. This stuff wouldn't make you laugh so much. But right. this does not make you laugh. It will make you lay down and clutch your clutch your stomach, and you will lay in fetal position and wish it was over. But when it is over, you, you are immediately interested in what happened, why it happened. You know, the, but the pain is a is a hard barrier. Very. Very sick to my stomach when I would do it. Okay. Yeah, Michael was actually just talking about uh, how some of the bad trips are some of the most beneficial because you get more mm-hmm. out of them and things like that. So That's exactly right. The more difficult ones um, are usually the more beneficial because you're working through your own content. I like to stress to folks that say, oh, well, I had a bad trip. I'm never doing that again. That trip isn't in the drug. There's no angels or demons in the drug those are you they're in you and you can look at it or you can look away and part Mm -hmm. of you know the psychological benefit of this stuff is looking at it and incorporating it and not pushing it out outside where it gets caught up in someone else and we deal with what young called projection and dealing with shadow elements and other people you know if you read young the minute he brings up the shadow and its consequences he starts talking about world war ii and nazis and he's like he was living in that and saying you know this is the consequence the is we take that as far as it goes you know uh, 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 that comes from a world of people not looking at that demon not looking at it and saying i accept that to some degree under the right circumstances i'm identical to that i am that you know and psychedelics they force that on you and not wanting to look at it is what most people characterize as a bad or difficult trip but looking at it walking through it can just as well turn that difficult trip into the most glorious experience you've had you know there's all there's there most trips are multifaceted in that way so that it's not a bad trip you might have had a bad moment that overshadowed every single other moment of that trip but most of them are multifaceted to the degree that you get to work on multiple sides of the psyche not just negative or positive yeah, I mean, I've I've always said that uh, you know if you have a bad trip too, it's most likely that you've been putting some inner demons off or some sort of anxiety or stresses in your life, and you haven't faced them. And when you are on psychedelics, they force you to confront these issues that you're not you haven't mm-hmm. been willing to in day to day consciousness. So, um, you know, usually if you can deal with that in there and work it out, uh, that's why psychedelic 
trips are so cleansing. That's why you see all these retreats and people going on these retreats and uh, trying to find, you know, uh, rediscover these ancient mushroom, sacred mushroom rituals and uh, all these different ways to kind of get in touch, you know, with yourself like that. I think that that's mm -hmm. why um, people go to therapy too. You know, there's all sorts of different ways to deal with these things. But I think that um, at the base level of psychedelics, it's like the thing that helps the most is when you come out of it and you're, you're, you're refreshed that it's over. Not that it wasn't interesting or fun in some regards, but that you know what you have to do now. You have this like, re, it's like a reawakening. It's like, okay, now it's time to get my shit together and, you know, become a better person and work on these things mm -hmm. in my life or that, you know, the things that I've been putting off or whatever the case may be. So there's a funny meme where the guy's like, I just came down off mushrooms and it shows the guy like lawn mowing his, his roof. I don't know if you've seen that. It's, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you got to get your stuff together. So, um, but, uh, so in terms of, I've got, you can't see it. I've got the Telesterion in my background. All you see is a green screen, but I've got the Telesterion in my background. Um, nice. with all the talk of, you know, ancient, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries and mystery schools and ancient psychedelic use and Soma and all these different things. Um, how close do you think we are to figuring more? I know the immortality key just came out and I know you've obviously written alchemically stoned and there's a lot of interest in these subjects. Now, do you think that it's going to be like how we look at uh, like when we discover things about like ancient Egypt or this, where it's a kind of like an evolving picture. It's not something, even when you make a discovery, it's not really, you know, the truth isn't out there yet. It's still a lot of work to do. Do you think it's like that? Or do you think that we're, we kind of have a good idea as far as what went on? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. With all that stuff and like Soma, I mean, I, well, Soma is still a big debate. You take but. it to the, to the Greek angle, you take it in that direction because that was actually what I was going to say in response to um, your previous comment about bad trips and, you know, you, you, you said about psychology, this is really what people go for in psychology. And it made me think of <clears throat> um, how Jacques Lacan said that, you know, modern psychoanalysis is a version of the ancient mysteries insofar it fulfills the injunction written over the threshold at uh, at Delphi that said, Nothi Sotan, know thyself. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal, the real goal of psychology, you know, an analysis in addition to strengthening the ego, which I know is going to sound <laughs> weird to some people, but psychology analysis mainly exists to strengthen the ego, not kill it. Uh, people who are going through analysis usually need it because their ego is not, keeping them at a decent sort of interface with the world and they're slipping into that other stuff. But, it's more about keeping your ego in check. I always say it's not, you're not, I, I'm not a big ego disillusion guy either. I had never really believed in, even if that happens during the experience, your, your ego is coming back after, you know, to a certain level. And check from both ways. Right, right. right. You got to keep it in a balance where it's like, it's, it is, you are what you feed your ego. So if you keep it in balance and keep yourself in check, you know, I think that you can use your ego in good ways. Like I want to become a better musician. So I'm going to practice my guitar a bunch mm -hmm. of hours to become better than this person. That's like a healthy way. I think to look, it's necessary to have any interface with the world to right. have an ego. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the notion that you can do anything without one and other than be a hermit on a mountain useless to everyone is completely fallacious concept about how the mind works. But, 
But my main point was that uh, the the mysteries, to a large degree, and psych, psych I mean psychedelics, to a large degree, did fulfill that in the same way that analysis did to fulfill that injunction of the ancient mysteries to know thyself. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's debate over that too. Of, Some people say Thales came up with that. Some people attribute Socrates or Plato. Mm. So that's an interesting thing too, because we don't have other than. Um, Plato's dialogues and Xenophon's um, writings about Socrates, we really don't have a ton of information. No, that's right. That's right. And we don't have a ton of information on the mysteries either. You know, we have statements from Proclus and some of the Neoplatonists, and we know that uh, um, um, who wrote Oedipus? Uh, shoot, he just escaped. Sophocles? Sophocles? Mm was an, an initiate in the mysteries, but not, you know, all of them, what they said about it was so limited. Um, we don't really know what took place outside of those statements. So when we try and hone in on what the sacrament was, what the entheogen was, what the kukion was, um, all we can do is theorize. You know, the, the most popular theory is the one put forth in Road to Eleusis by mm-hmm. Ruck, Wasson, and Hoffman regarding the ergot. And uh, there might be some truth to that, uh, but there's been lots of scholars to also take issue with it. Tom Hatzis being one, you know, he argues instead for um, opium. And a lot of people think that's strange to think about using opium as an entheogen. People like to think of entheogens as being psychedelics. But when we look at the term entheogen in plants that were used within that context, there's actually more evidence that plants that weren't psychedelic were used in an entheogenic context than the psychedelic ones, um, which is strange. Yeah, I don't know. But... I, I, the whole, uh, I, know, I know that that's a suggestion too, or they've, you know, mixture of cannabis and opium for Soma has been a candidate or ephedra. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the opium thing for the, the mysteries, if you read Plato's accounts, this dude's not taking opium, you know, like this, these, that's not, no, I don't think so either. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, whatever that guy's theory might have some validity to it, but I don't, I um, know that Demeter was depicted holding opium bulbs. And I think Tom is trying to say, let's go with what we know. And there, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. And, aren't they, isn't there a lot of depictions holding grain though, too, which we know grain also claviceps purpurea grows on, you know, so that was Ruck's argument was that claviceps purpurea glows, grows on barley. You know, the rarian plane is adjacent to the telesterion and that in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, the recipe for the kukion is given as water barley groats and pennyroyal mint leaves. Right. We know that pennyroyal mint leaves outside of a slight thuhone content isn't psychoactive, but the barley would be if it was ergotized. So those are really Ruck's starting points. But again, Ruck is trying to, in that chapter, he's writing for Wasson, you know, just like you wrote a chapter for Wasson and Persephone's quest. When Ruck wrote the book that, reflected his ideas on it he published it in um sacred mushrooms of the goddess and Mm -hmm. he he argued instead for amanita muscaria and gave a great argument for it and giorgio samarini the famous um italian psychedelic researcher i think he's an ethnobotanist i'm not sure of his actual credentials but um but he endorsed 
Bruck's findings in that book, saying that, you know, if we, I think we've finally gotten to a clear picture of what was taking place at Eleusis. So, you know, we don't know what it is, that what it was. There's been lots of theories. Those theories have been yeah, argued well. I, th I think that there's other parts of the Eleusinian mysteries that do point to entheogens or psychedelics too, and like even more so to some component of that, you know, uh, ergot, which would be, you know, the plant, you know, the, the lesser mysteries and the planting festival, you know, and the later mysteries or the, or the greater mysteries and the, um, only being able to experience it once and people dying and coming back to life. Yeah. And, 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 um, just like everything coming together and the mythology of, uh, Persephone being taken into the underworld, which is very shamanic, very psychedelic, you know, from mm -hmm. other indigenous cultures. Um, so there's a lot of hallmarks of psychedelic influence yeah, that, there. That myth repeats over and over in different cultures. We see the family change. The family members will change in that myth, but the right. myth itself stays the same. The dynamics change. So like if we look at in Mesopotamia, we have Inanna descending to the underworld, um, taking off her seven veils at each of the arches in order to retrieve the water of life to revive her consort. Mm -hmm. Inanna is trying to revive her husband, right? But by the time it becomes an Egyptian myth, it's Osiris. Right, and Osiris, Isis, and back, Horus. But yeah. back together by Isis. So it's a husband and wife dynamic still but then by the time we get to eleusis it's almost like that dynamic didn't work for the greek psyche and they needed it to be a mother-daughter relationship and that also for some reason probably made more sense with the underworld being ruled by a masculine figure that needed a wife you know and it might not have even been a rational process by which they came up with their myth it might have been something directly perceived in a trance state or Right. You know, just perceived and known, you know, the way these myths like Young and Campbell talk about thrust themselves upon you. You become aware of them. You know, you don't come up with them in a way they came up with you. You're born into their so, so matrix, so to speak. The only hiccup, though, would be obviously ergot's poisonous to humans. Mm -hmm. So yes. it's a precursor to LSD, but it's not, you know, I think... Well, I was listening to a Terrence McKenna discussion where he was talking about, I think, I don't know if it was rock, but he was saying you could float hot oil on top of the mixture that they were heating up and it could take some of those, I don't know, or boil fat on top and it would suck some I of the, that, the alkaloids that, that are the negative alkaloids out. One of the arguments that I've seen um, was that if you do just a simple cold water extraction, that only the toxic alkaloids are not water soluble you'd have to heat it up and use a solvent maybe but if you just did a cold water extraction none of the toxic one would, would come through hmm. but there's another argument put forth that i think uses some of that similar logic um peter webster wrote uh um, preparing the kikion or something like that that was published as an appendix to some of the later editions of road to elusis is you can find it in the current edition if you buy it off Amazon. Mm. But um, he gives a method of preparation involving ash filtration, um, something that Chris Bennett noted uh, in it. The method itself sounded incredibly alchemical. 
Um, yeah, I've gone actually he, back and forth on Facebook with him about Soma uh, a little bit back. He's he's an interesting guy. I know he's wrote a couple books. Was it Lieber 420 and a, a few other things? Maybe we should get him on the mm-hmm. show. I haven't uh, talked to him. Oh, about definitely. It. Lieber 420 is um, is a is a tome, and it's magnificent. Um, but so uh, so 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 sure. is that the only route then to get to the the uh, effects without the negative aspects of it? Because I I know that was the only uh, drawback of that theory was okay we have this compound it is the precursor but how were they doing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only real drawback that uh, we don't know how. But I think Peter Webster, if anybody has figured it out or come close it's 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 him um shout out to sandy listener she just mentioned to uh brian uh for the immortality key found uh mushrooms on one of the vessels at the the louvre supposedly so mm -hmm. i don't know how that would maybe play into uh there's mushrooms on several several different uh uh reliefs at um in and around the area at eleusis that are published in Road to Eleusis also, where he's they're they're described in the literature as flowers. They're clearly not flowers; they're mushrooms. Right. Um, but I don't I don't That's know awesome. what Brian's found at the Louvre. I I've, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities too, right? Read his books. Oh, you have yeah. I I mean, it's it's definitely. I mean, there's obviously he found physical evidence of ergot in these chalices and different uh, vessels and stuff like that. So. I mean, at very least, that these people were drinking, for some reason, ergot, which doesn't make any sense other than, you know, mixing it in as some sort of psychoactive compound. Uh, but in terms yeah, of... Uh, and there's some other research in Alan, Alan Piper and a couple, I think, there's a couple of other researchers on that paper, but it's called... Um, wines wines of light something in wines of light but it's looking at the use of ergotized breads in um judaism and in islam and there's also give me one second hang on sure um so we got some interesting stuff here i love this this discussion yeah this is so uh... this book right here um dan merker who was a professor out of canada okay uh, he wrote this book um really standing on the shoulders of ruck wasson and hoffman but he's looking at um different examples of manna and other ergotized grain examples from the old testament as an attempt to explain where and when ergotized grain might have been used outside of Eleusis. And his argument it, at times is incredible. There's At one point he's talking about something he calls the drought ordeal, and I talk about this in my first book, um, Alchemically Stoned. But he says, so he first mentions, he cites some scholarship that says that the tabernacle in the wilderness was a projection into the past of King Solomon's temple that most scholars agree. He's not saying this is his opinion. Um, he's saying he's pointing out scholarly research that argues and argues well that the tabernacle was was something that was projected far into the past of something that was already 
taking place or was already being mythologized at that time, which mm -hmm. was King Solomon's temple. So he looks at the, and let me also say that in Freemasonry, in the in the uh, the very first degree, the inner apprentice degree, we're told that the tabernacle in the wilderness was an exact replica of King Solomon's temple, or the other way around. King Solomon's temple was an exact replica of the tabernacle in the wilderness, only on a larger scale. So we know that King Solomon's temple, we're also told in the earlier versions of the inner apprentice ritual, and this is true if you you can find scriptural basis for it. When King Solomon built his temple, he built it on the threshing floor of Ornan. This guy Ornan has this threshing floor. Next to it is a wine press, and that's where a vision of an angel is seen. And so they know that this is where we're going to build the temple. So King Solomon's temple is built on top of a threshing floor. Hmm. In the drought ordeal, in the book of Numbers, in this tabernacle, there are two women who have been accused of adultery. And as a test to, dis to figure out if they're guilty, maybe it was one woman, but <clears throat> to find out if she's guilty, they take a glass of water and dust from the floor of the tabernacle and put it in this water. And they give it to her to drink, and they tell her that if she's lying about the adultery, that her belly will swell up and that her thigh will rot off. Two definite symptoms of ergot poisoning, okay. gastrous swelling and right. gangrene. Right. And that if she's not lying, that she will have like a vision or something positive. Something takes place after that's positive if she's not lying. And Merker's arguing that the priests already knew what would happen because they knew already that it either had straight ergot in it with the grains in it that she's drinking to get ergot poisoning, or it would have had the prepared kukion right. style beverage that isn't gangrenous and toxic. They the priests already knew. You know, they're just Right. According to Merkur, they were using this as an opportunity to also show their divinity and, sure. uh, you know, in a way of proving justice. But it's pretty odd that they would be drinking this from a dust on the floor that we're told is an exact replica. So if kings, if it's an exact replica projected into the past, King Solomon's temple is built on a threshing floor. That dust on the floor of the tabernacle could just as well have been ergotized grain. And you right. see similar references to the threshing floor in the road to Eleusis, where there were rituals, like the Haloa ritual, for example, which preceded um, the, the lesser and greater rituals proper, which was done in this circular Haloa, where just like in the Egyptian Jed rituals, they would erect a pillar in the center, and the women would walk around nude and make obscene jokes about men, about phalluses, about sex. It's still debated about why they did this, but they did it on the threshing floor mm. as a ceremony. So there's a, like almost like this association of it with the humorousness, with sexuality, with all those things that get wrapped up with tripping, you know, the, right. the laughing and the 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 um, aphrodisiac qualities and 
et cetera. So, so what, um, in terms of when you look at, you know, these mysteries and, and everything and like the progression, um, obviously you have different mysteries that I'm sure had different cultures associated with the psychedelic use that accompanied it. But when you look at specifically the Eleusinian mysteries, um, you know, in that book, the mortality key, you know, there's a lot of talk about like tropanes and stuff like that. Tropanes. I mean, I've talked to now Matthew Johnson, Andrew Gallimore, some of the top psychedelic scientists out there. And it seems to be the consensus that tropanes are not really that fun or, or effective in terms of what we would assume with these like therapeutic effects with all these possibly tryptamines and, and other, um, like the MDA receptors and stuff like that. So why do you think that that's, um, that was prevalent or why do you, what do you think people were doing with, with a lot of like the tropane use back then? I think, well, it's not at all pleasant if you take a huge dose right off the bat, but it's a, it's a skill that can be acquired. Um, so that wouldn't be a candidate then for the Eleusinian mysteries. If there was just a random farmer coming to experience the greater mysteries for the first time, being given no, a tropane no, probably wouldn't be. I No, absolutely not. That is not the way you use tropanes. And whatever experience you would have had from that kind of a tropane dose, you wouldn't remember it. Uh, you just don't. Right. You don't hold on to those experiences. It does something to your brain. You, I mean. Yeah, Gallimore was talking about it. It's almost you like know? you're having, instead of, you know, when most of the times when you have psychedelic experiences you're seeing flowing patterns or things that are there that are just more animate or something like that with tropanes he's saying you're it's like a delirium you're seeing things that are not there you're talking to people that are not there you know that's why i haven't worked up to those kinds of doses i I mean i'm still working up to having a successful experience with them but that's kind of how you have to approach this stuff you got to do it safely um and, you know, you start with micro doses and work up. And once you get to a dose where you feel something, stick with that for a little while, you know, before you move. That's what I'm doing. And anyway. also they're not as safe physiologically, too. There's effects on the they're heart. Not, There's effects on, you know, the, on the body. The wrong dose, yeah. you can do serious damage to your brain, to your body, to your organs. Um, but it's, you know, it's also one of the most ancient Um there there was uh there's an example of a particular triangle motif that shows up in ochre mainly throughout these petroglyphs in Arizona and it, and what the researchers discovered was that in every single case of this motif repeating underneath it was growing a patch of uh, nightshade, atropine mm-hmm. plants that they said that had been there for a millennia. They've been, they grow oh. there every year, always have, have evidence of them being there. And there's also a similar motif of the, what they call pinwheel cave. And I think it's in California. Yeah, they just found that where they found the, the, the uh, quids chewed and stuffed That's up right. in the little holes. And the f- the flower, it's clearly a Datura flower. They thought it was also, a galaxy, right? Before, like they thought it was an astronomical uh, depiction. 
they thought it was some something. You know, they'll reach for anything because right. usually for something naturalistic. Except for the yeah, except for the entheogenic. Uh, except for the, anything <laughs> drug. You except know. the big, yeah, yeah. But but in every single case, it was either an atropine related plant or a species of tobacco which also contained alkaloids in it that it shared with nightshades. So something about that image for the people that inhabited that region uh, communicated something about that experience. And, you know, and this is one of the points of contention that a lot of psychedelic researchers have taken with Lewis Williams, David Lewis Williams. Um, I think his full name is James David Lewis Williams his concept of the three stages of trance because where he applies this theory of the three stages of trances um, in areas of Africa where they're using these Datura related substances. And the argument is unlike serotonergic hallucinogenic drugs that bond to the five HT two a receptor that cause geometric visual motifs, right? Datura usually isn't thought to do that. Neither are any of the other atropine alkaloids. And yet, the plants occurred under every single occurrence of this particular geometrical motif. And the triangles, as well as that spiral image, you know, the those three stages of trance, the first stage of trance is based on what um, Heinrich Kluver, who was a German-American psychiatrist, um, he was shooting himself and his assistant up with mescaline, trying to study the subjective effects of mescaline. And in doing this, they documented the visual phenomenology of mescaline and documented what they call form constants. And it's this series of recurring geometrical motifs that happen when you shoot up with mescaline or take mescaline. And that's mescaline a completely do that's a phenethylamine, so it's a completely different type of an alkaloid as well than but the tryptamine. It's right. not a tryptamine, but it's still right. serotonergic. And uh, that's right. And um, it's what appears in peyote, San Pedro. Um, so these ge recurring geometric motifs are what you regularly see in a lot of these cave drawings, cave art, that James David Lewis Williams, I think that's his name, I'm sure it's Lewis Williams, um, associates with uh, the first and three stages of trance. The second stage of trance is where those geometric motifs start to take on any appearance they can, almost like whatever they have to, the potential to look like. So what in the first stage of trance appears as a honeycomb geometric motif with hexagons, mm -hmm. and the second stage of trance might actually appear as a honeycomb itself. Or, or, and then any other number of things that have with stop signs in them. I know those are octagons, but anything right. that could be hexagonal and fit in that, it could be all of those. And then by the time you get to stage three, all of that potential of what that spiral could be coalesces into one thing and you have an experience, which usually is accompanied by a narrative, um, a, abduction experiences, healing experiences, shamanic dismemberment. Any usually an, ex, an experience where you don't remember that you're on a drug and you feel fully fully submerged, where you're not watching it happening, it's happening to you. Right. So that would be the difference in stage one, two, and three. But stage one is characterized by those form constants, which 
everybody who's taken mescaline can say, oh, yeah, you see those on mescaline. But it's hard to say you see those on, would see those on, on Datura or Belladonna or any of those. And yet the, ge- the, the geometric motifs are recurring. So they may, it, the natives may be almost saying, you know, this is like the other thing we take that causes geometry. You know, or what about mixing like too? Because I know in some parts possible, of the, the yeah. Amazon, they they throw a little datura in with the ayahuasca, which I know some yeah. people are definitely against. Yeah. Toe-way. So, so I mean, could there be some sort of mixture thing happening there too? Absolutely. You know, our modern concept of ayahuasca, everybody immediately goes to Banisteriopsis copy and Socotria viridis. You go down into the Amazon, every single group that you find that's using it has a different blend. Some of them use Diplopteris cabrarana instead of the Socotria viridis. Some of them don't use Diplopteris or Socotria. They only use the Banisteriopsis copy. And then, like you say, some of them add the um, Brugmansia flowers to it and call right. it that's the Toe additive, which is the Brazilian um, nightshade. Uh, you'll see them with, they call them angel trumpets. They'll be yellow, white, or pink, and they're really prevalent around here in the South. I don't know if you see them where you go. Where are you guys? Uh, I'm in Chicago, and Maurice is in uh, Detroit. Okay. You guys probably see more um, uh, Datra. If you go, Maurice, if you go to the um, to the Detroit courthouse, all outside of it, is Datura planted all outside in the front yeah. flower? Is a Jack White saved that Masonic Lodge in Detroit too? I know. That's he, right. Yeah, he, I love his that. mom I worked there or temple. something, and he, he wanted to preserve the building or something like it's that. It's a beautiful building. I've never been inside that particular one. I spoke um, at a, a different lodge when I was up there, and that's how I saw it. Uh, Brother Jake Foster, shout out to Jake, took me out to uh, to the courthouse, and sure enough, all around it. I mean. Planted with intention was Datura Mattel. I couldn't believe it. Hmm. So real quick, back to the Eleusinian Mysteries. What about like other candidates too? Like what about Morning Glory, you know, or possibly some sort of, you know, Peganum Harmala is prevalent in that area. There could have been something. And I know Terrence McKenna even mentions in one of his talks too that water in the recipe for the um, uh, Kikian is... Um, you know, waters and augum, you know, it could be used as, you know, you could put anything in there and, and replace that in, in the recipe. Hmm. So I don't yeah, know. I, I mean, mean, like, what do you think about, like, do you think that there is any other candidates or do you think that it's either non-psychedelic or it's just... Um, oh, I'm ergot? sure there's multiple other other candidates. I'm sure that it, I mean, you got to think how far back the Eleusinian right. mysteries went. And think about something like soma which could have even started by, by the minoans too that's speculation too that you know the precursor in, in uh um, mycenae you know the pre-hellenic stuff and then kind of mm-hmm. we know for it went on for two thousand years whoever the hyperboreans were yeah what, what ruck and ruck speculates who the hyperboreans could have been it's usually looked at as being another dimension mm-hmm. but he speculates it as being an earlier people okay whoever they might have been but it, but just like with Soma, I'm certain that Soma, with its vast epochs of it being a sacrament, and considering 
you know, how climates change. People are become nomadic. They'll move to regions where one plant grows, another one doesn't. You know, I'm certain that soma was multiple things at different times. That's, what, different that's funny you said. That's what I was arguing with Chris Bennett. I was saying it's it's soma might have just been like the word psychedelic or entheogen or whatever, where it could possibly just be it could be cannabis, but it could also be ephedra. It could also be, you know, there's a mural that they found. I think it's they were Russian archaeologists found a mural with two people holding up a mushroom over like a flame and some ceremonial. Uh, thing in that region where some because you get the the mongolian yeah and you have that break off there of the um you know the indo-iranian migrations and you got some people going to india and you have some people going to down through to iran you know so um around the uh the black sea there so i mean i just think that uh that was my argument as well or that's what i think you know we've i've done some research on like the migrations and the etymology and like you know language and how these things you know uh, Haoma, Soma, Homa, you know, like all the variations. And uh, I think that it, yeah, it could just be like how we use the word drug or psychedelic now. It could be, you know, I, and reading his. Uh, uh, it does make a compelling sold, case, though, for uh, cannabis, I will say that. I was completely sold on Wasson's argument and all of the people who followed Wasson and his argument for Amanita muscaria as Soma. Um, but when I read uh, his cannabis and the soma solution, it's pretty clear that somebody saw saw cannabis soma as cannabis for a long time. Multiple people did. Right. Uh, but as far as whether whether cannabis was always soma, no, I'm not convinced of that. I I definitely think that it was different things at different times. Well, there's but there's but differences Chris in the Rig Veda. Hell of an art. Yeah, there's differences in the Rig Veda and the Avesta that there's the way that it's described, there's contradictions. You know, it's gold here, right. it's green there, it's, you know, right. uh, uh, you know, mashed up here, it's not done that way here. You know, there's milk involved here, you know, so there's a lot of different things going on there. But yeah, I, I agree with uh, what and you're McKenna saying. McKenna cites, uh, he cites in. You know, he published that Magic Mushrooms Grower's Guide as O.T. and O.N. Oerich or O.T. Oss or something like that. Some crazy pseudonym. But it's the McKenna Brothers. And um, in the back of it, he says that in 1984, heterodox Bengali Hindus came forward and announced publicly that what they had been using as the Soma sacrament was psilocybin mushrooms. Mm. So there's a whole nother. Yeah. Is there speculation that that's why the cows, you know, I'm sure there's multiple reasons, but that was one of the things why cows are sacred because mushrooms grow. He he talks all about this. Mike Crowley, he's got a, I don't know if he's published it yet, but it's a paper on, um, on psilocybin mushrooms as a sort of female mysteries, a female cult, because the, the, the cow herders were females. The gopi girls is what they were called. And they were the ones who saw Krishna, who was blue, mm-hmm. shows up in the, and stands on one foot, almost like a mushroom stipe. And, um, and the, you know, following um, Clark Heinrich, he gives some other examples from Indian mythology that have a heavy... Uh, 
Right. Clear, what looks to be a fungal angle to it. So let's pivot here uh, before we wrap it up and tell us a little bit about your new book and your new research and, uh, you know, where, where do you see this going, you know, in terms of, are you going to possibly, is this like an, you know, evolving thing where you're just going to keep writing and researching and building off that? Because it seems like there's still a lot to be discovered. So, you know, what did you find in your new book that, you know, was kind of groundbreaking? Well, so with the first one, you know, we ran into the problem of, it's clear that there that Cagli, people like Cagliostro and Melisino are using the acacia in an entheogenic context. How did it get that way? Are they appropriating an already present Masonic symbol because they already knew that that plant was also entheogenic and they want to say, let's add this to the degree? Or are they coming out with something that was kind of already hush-hush but present within the work? I couldn't answer that at the time. But in the new book, uh, what what kind of blew the lid off of all of this was Desaguliers' involvement. And I hint at this in the first one because I had a suspicion, but I couldn't follow it up with any clear evidence. Um, before Desaguliers served as Grand Master in the Premier Grand Lodge in London, if you look at all of the exposés, all of the um, ritual books, everything that we have, there's not a single example of a sprig of acacia in any of those rituals. It just appears all of the sudden after De Sagulier leaves office. And it's uniform. Every, after he leaves office, virtually every lodge in Europe switches from cassia to acacia. And I, you know, why did he do that? Why, how could he have known about the psychoactive effects of acacia? And is that why he put it in there? All these questions. <laughs> well, De Sagulier was research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society. The Royal Society was founded by a group of men who I didn't know this at the time were investigating not only alchemy, but the use of alchemy to communicate with angels, mm. discorporate entities. And the way that they believed you could accomplish this was through the use of drugs. Now, that might sound crazy. How could that be? You know, how could we know that? But right. the thing that really made me start investigating this side of it. In 2010, the Royal Society put on display this list of items called Boyle's Wish List that Robert Boyle, who was the first elected president of the society, he turned it down, but he was the first elected president, who he wanted, the of items he wanted to acquire for this new society to study. This thing is full of drugs. He wants to acquire, he says, the Egyptian electuary mentioned by the uh, the electuary mentioned by the Egyptians, which is a uh, Chris Bennett believes is a, a reference to Egyptian electuaries, hashish electuaries like Majun and Dawamesk. He says that he wants to acquire drugs that cause epileptic fits, visions, dreams, 
he wants to acquire the fungus. He says the fungus mentioned by the French author, which is probably a reference to Rabelais, um, who the guy who Crowley got do it thou wilt from the Abbey of Thelema. He was an alchemist who um, wrote about this plant, Pantagruelion, which is cannabis. It's most scholars, pretty much all scholars agree was cannabis, but he also wrote about um, fly agaric mushrooms in an entheogenic context. He says agaric, but uh, mm-hmm. um, so when they say they want to acquire the mushroom, the fungus mentioned by the French author, that's probably what they're talking about. And he says by name, he says hallucinogenic drugs. So the early Royal Society, what they were interested in and studying were hashish, magic mushrooms. <laughs> and not only that, but we know that they also had in their possession all of Columbus's documents because navigation was one of the early Royal Society's concerns and cartography. They had Columbus's report of Yopo coming from this plant, coming from this, uh, what was later identified as Acacia Neopo. Now, I don't know if where Humboldt got that name, Acacia Neopo. He got the Neopo from in Yopo, the Yopo being the snuff itself. But he identified it as an Acacia. So, De, and De Sagulier, in addition to that, in one of his texts, he mentions doing experiments with hashish. Well, I mean, not with hashish, excuse me, with um, uh, hemp hmm. um, for scientific purposes. He doesn't say exactly what, but he mentions those experiments. So hallucinogenic drugs by name was what the Royal Society was looking into. And it was this background that De Sagulier came out of when he entered Freemasonry. And not only that, what he was exposed to the was likely an extract of acacia. And this, this all comes from Ashmole, one of the founders of the Royal Society, who was also John Dee's biographer. Now, John Dee and Edward Kelly were two Elizabethan uh, magicians, alchemists, uh, who were concerned with communicating with... Yeah. Angels, right. They invented the Enochian system of magic. But D was concerned with communicating with angels so that mainly so that he could spy on other territories. Um, he had this idea that the earth was separated in kind of bands that went all the way up to heaven. And each of those bands was ruled by a different angel. So if that band touched a country, he believed that angel ruled that country. And if he could speak to that angel through his crystal ball, he could get information to and from that country or about that country. So he saw the crystal ball as being like a third to the telescope or the microscope, where the one lets you see small things you couldn't see, the other lets you see large things you couldn't see. This lets you th- see things, absent things you can't see, mm-hmm. was how D looked at it. And so D couldn't get it to work himself. He was in the habit of hiring these different squ- scryers none of whom he liked, Scryer being a, the seer who was able to see the angels in this crystal ball. But finally, Kelly comes around. Now, Kelly sought D out, and D doesn't know this. D thinks he's hiring this guy as a seer, but Kelly actually sought him out because Kelly was in possession of this red powder and this manuscript called the Book of Dunstan that he believed was the alchemical manuscript for how to make more of this powder and that this powder was the philosopher's stone. 
So Ashmol actually, you can read it in his diaries and in his letters to Boyle. Ashmole believed that the means by which Kelly was able to talk to angels was by the red powder. Whatever that red powder was, it lets you talk to angels. Now, anyone who's done DMT or studied it knows that one of the most common experiences reported is contact with extra dimensional beings, which are convert, can be described as angels or aliens, or you get all kinds of descriptions, but right. what, how, how would a, how would Ashmole, Ashmole and Boyle have described it? You know, how would Kelly have described it? It would have been angels. They would have interpreted this in terms of revelation, you know, in terms of biblical language. So absolutely, Boyle comes to, uh, Ashmole comes to Boyle and he's like, so I acquired, Ashmole acquired these papers. He's like, I acquired these papers. I've been working the system. There's this powder that allows you to see angels. And Boyle actually writes about it. He's got a paper that he wrote that you can read called The Angelical Stone and Communication with Incorporeal Spirits. So he's asking the question in this paper, how is it that there can be an incorporeal substance that through its use or application – can allow you communication with incorporeal entities. He says, I don't, he says, why are they even interested in it? He says, why are there angels hovering about this substance? I don't understand. You know, it right. doesn't make sense to me. Well, Boyle tells Ashmole, that's interesting because I've also been looking into that, this alchemist named Wenzel Saylor, who was in possession of this red powder that he got, that he, that he was told is the, philosopher's stone so Boyle is looking into this powder right about the same time they get a letter from this guy named George Ash who's a member of the Royal Society and he says look I know you're researching Wenzel Sailor's powder Wenzel didn't get the powder the way he said he did he claimed he discovered it inside of a column inside this church where he was a monk George Ash says he didn't get it that way he actually got it in Prague where Edward Kelly was the court projector. He served as the court alchemist under Rudolph II. Mm. So he's like, the powder that you're studying came from Edward Kelly. So Boyle and Ashmole are like, we're both studying the same powder. They both came from Edward Kelly. Isn't Rudolph II, didn't, isn't he the one that had the possession of the Codex Gigas too that I was mentioning earlier with the first Is that right? image of the devil? If, if I know he was fascinated, I know Rudolph, or the Rudolph I'm talking about uh, was fascinated with um, Kelly and 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 uh, D. So I don't. I, I think it's that that might be the case. Probably the same Rudolph. Yeah, thing, because he the he hired Kelly to be his count. His in fact, he albums. wore. They say that he's the one that got all the smudges on that image of the devil. Why it's so smudged in the Codex Gigas? Because he was fascinated with staring at this image all the time, and he was fascinated with like esoteric and uh, alchemy yeah. and all that. So I think that that's probably the same person. He was the Hermetic Emperor. Is, yeah. Uh, one yeah, it was, that, it was that. It was it was uh yeah Prague right or uh, Prague yeah yep. Rudolph II of Prague yeah that is the same guy that's interesting another, another piece to the puzzle here <laughs> you <laughs> should and I'm not I don't ever to tell anybody to watch our episodes but you should watch our episode on the Codex Gigas and let me know what you think because there might be some stuff in there I sure will yeah yeah but it's it's definitely fascinating that we come back around full circle but he he. The Kelly seems to be the source of all this, which is why the subtitle of my book is my new book is the philosopher's stone from D to DMT, because 
it really starts with Dean Kelly. You know, Kelly, if you read the, there's like a genealogy of the Philosopher's Stone that's given in Falconelli's second book, Dwelling of the Philosophers. And it begins with Kelly. He gives a few other names before that, but he shows that the way it came to us was however Kelly got it. And Kelly claimed to have gotten it from the grave of a bishop. And that bishop was Dunstan, St. Dunstan, who was the Bishop of Canterbury. And Dunstan, before he was Bishop of Canterbury, he was known to be sort of, before he became a monk, he was real popular with the ladies. He liked to drink. He's got this sort of, um, he's got this. Uh, uh, he's a rock word? star bishop. Yeah, he's got the, <laughs> he's got um, an air about him that is rebellious, and um, and when he finally does become a monk, one of the things that made him famous was the fact that all he wanted to do was play his harp and pray but he was visited in his chambers every day by the devil. The devil would come to him in these visions and he got so, he was an alchemist too. That's, and that's important. He was a practicing alchemist and the devil, he got so sick of the devil coming in his chambers that he took his tongs that he would use for his alchemy. He took his tongs out of the fire and grabbed the devil by his nose and led him out of the chambers and was like, get the hell out of my room and don't come back. And lots of people allegedly saw it. And you'll see that on icons of St. Dunstan. He'll be leading the devil around by the nose by these, uh, um, blacksmith tongs. But so it was his grave where this powder was allegedly found and Kelly claimed he found it. Now we know Kelly actually told a different story to somebody else that, um, he acquired it in a ceramic orb that he was staying at a, a, a an inn in Wales, and the innkeeper knew Kelly was an alchemist, and he was like, well, look, I got this weird manuscript that this soldier gave me along with this ivory ball. He said there were two of them. One of them he threw away, and it had white powder in it, but it broke on the ground and the powder blew away. But when he saw that, he realized, well, maybe I could sell the red one. So there's this red sphere they assume has powder in it that is given to Kelly. So Kelly's got this manuscript and this ivory or ceramic ball that unscrews and is full of red powder. And that's allegedly, at least in Boyle and Ashmole's mind, what makes communication with angels possible. Mm. So from there, we get right into the Royal Society, Royal Society from De Sagulier to Freemasonry. And, you know, that's how it got there. Uh, to the best of my ability to determine how this took Incredible. place, that's how it happened. No, I like it. You do. You oh, definitely yeah. do your research. You can tell and you read a ton of stuff. And that's good. I think that that's if people are passionate about stuff and um you're interested in these subjects that's how you should approach it um it's totally both you guys man my head's swimming with all these names i don't know how you i don't know how you can pinpoint that and remember i mean i just must be i'm not i I don't have that ability to remember these these dates and names and all that stuff you guys really uh, have a good nerd now um (laughs) so yeah no that's interesting i'm looking forward to your book too and it comes out what may what did you say may night 14th 19th may 19th, may 19th is actually sorry. the feast day of it's the feast day of saint dunstan so oh 
That's why a little, little connection there. Um, but yeah, I find that interesting. I got to go back and look at some stuff too. And it was Rudolph the second, now that I'm thinking about it. And he actually, they said he went crazy from being obsessed with the Codex Gigas and esoteric stuff. And they took away all of his power and stuff like that too. So I'm sure that, you know, when you come obsessed with things, we all know that, uh, tend to lose your mind a little bit so uh mm-hmm. what he probably maybe he was missing the the missing piece too which would be the psychoactive compounds i'm not sure i'd have to look into more of his backstory well, see, but... it, it, it seems that rudolph took kelly his kelly's testimony at face value and most alchemists when they're talking about gold aren't talking about gold you know they're they'll even say our gold is not the common right. gold um, and kelly is certainly one of those instances so when kelly was you know going around town or wherever he was making claims that he had the powder of transmutation that could turn base metals into gold i mean in his mind he did have that you know, but it's a metaphor. And how do you explain a metaphor to an emperor whose sole concern? I mean, granted, he's an emperor who's into esoteric things, right? But he's still an emperor who's concerned with gold and power. And when he hired Kelly, it was to make him gold. So Kelly couldn't produce that gold. And when he was asked to, was actually imprisoned because he couldn't produce yeah. it. But how do you say, well, it's a metaphor, Emperor, I'm sorry. You know, the Emperor's going to be like, well, no, you said gold, you know, and he got put in prison. Especially if he was already going a little crazy, you know. Mm -hmm. He tried to escape and fell and broke his leg, and I think he even tried to escape a second time, um, if I'm not mistaken. But he he died, died in prison, and D actually outlived him. And it's believed that D's surviving son was actually... Kelly's, uh, because if you know anything about the Enochian um, episode, the, one of the final things that they went through was the angels telling Dee and Kelly to swap wives. And Kelly at this time, I mean, Dee at this time was too old to have a baby, to have a kid. So when they swapped wives, that's probably when Dee's wife got pregnant. Sounds like. Kelly maybe wanted that. I don't know. It sounds like that, that's, that's what he wanted the angels to tell him, you know. It's like a modern day, uh, one of these people pulling a fast one, getting people following him it, and stuff. It could be, but when you re- if you read the diaries, Kelly hates it. Hates being a scryer, hates being a seer. He's broke. He wants Dee to give him more money so he can just go on about his business and leave because by this point he's realized – D is not the great alchemist I thought he was. He cannot read this manuscript. He can't make me more of this powder. He doesn't even know what this powder is. You know, by right. this point, Kelly is absolutely fed up with the whole thing. And every time the angels say anything, Kelly protests. And he says, do you hear how ridiculous? Listen to what they're saying. <laughs> D's like, you know, but let's push on. Let's just push on. You know, it's, it's constantly D pushing him to do it. And Kelly is... You know, I, I mean, he might have wanted to swap wives. He's and Kelly is kind of painted as a shyster that way. You know, his his ears were cropped and he had been in trouble. He'd been pilloried um, for the crime of coining, which is making 
coins from false metals, adulterated mm. metals, and passing them off as gold or silver as precious metals. So he was was kind of seen as a shyster, but uh, at the same time, in the diaries, man, he just seems tortured and absolutely sick of these questions. And uh, but even these line of questioning, most of the time, is concerned with you know money or spying, and 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 it seems to me that uh, a lot of the base suggestions that come from those angels are almost like giving them what they're asking for, you know, right? like really just like, Oh, you think this is what you want? Okay. Do this then. Right. You know, almost like, um, uh, like a teaching tool. Sure. Well, let's, let's wrap it up here. You have time to do like a 15 minute, 20 minute Patreon. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Sounds good. Well, everybody, uh, his new one comes out May 19th. Look for that. And you're on Facebook and stuff, right? So people can come find you. You have a group too. What's your group called on Facebook? Alchemically Stone. There's a group and there's a page. Um, and once we make the official announcement for Angels in Vermilion, there will be a page for that also. Cool. And we'll I'll put the links after we're done. I'll put the links down below the video so you guys can uh, and Gales can jump on that. And also uh, go to Amazon and buy his book, Alchemically Stoned, if you have not already. And uh, we really appreciate your time and sharing your knowledge and your research with us. Um, and uh, we look forward to, you know, maybe we can get you back on after I get a chance to read your book too, your new one. Uh, we can talk about that. But, uh, you know, love the research, love all the knowledge. You do great, great research, which is really appreciated. And, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you, sir. That was amazing. And uh yeah, if you are interested, we're going to continue this conversation at our, on our Patreon. So patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We're also on Discord if you want to chat with us on there. And uh, one more time, head on over to Indra's Web, uh, which is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So if you like talking about you know, the kind of stuff we talk about on this podcast and this episode and ancient psychedelic use and different theories and hypothesis and even more mainstream stuff too. It's the perfect place to uh, talk about that stuff. Oh, shout out to Sandy who just threw us a super chat. We love you, Sandy. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, we love everybody. Stay safe out there. And we look forward to uh, future See conversations. You next time. So peace. Peace. Thank you.